This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, family, from wherever you are joining us. Welcome to the 76th edition of In Class with Carr, Dr. Greg Carr. Hi. Hi. 76, we're getting long in the tooth and just getting started at the same time. Let me tell you, um, so I, I know where we're going a little bit today because you sent me some stuff, but um, I, uh, first, first, I've also been in a rabbit hole called Nubia uh, all for the last couple of days. And you uh, with a K, y'all, just like narrative. It's liberating. Remember last week, I was like, I'm not comfortable while I'm home now. It didn't take long. It don't take us long to adapt. Let me just say that about us. We all adapt. Um, but, you know, to be around people um, who, you know, it's the place that you want to be with the people you want to be with, you yeah. know, that's what Nubia is, the place yeah. that, you, that you never imagine with people that you absolutely love being around. So I just want to, uh, for the early adopters and the folk that are in, and you have to be a member of Narrative, so don't even ask, like, if, you know, we're doing it the reverse. You got to be a member before you become part right. of the family. But yeah, we it has turned into a thing. So I just want to... Um, Somebody might not know. Uh, somebody may be watching for the first time. Oh, what, is, okay. what is Nubia, Professor Hunter? It is I mean, uh, beside the, the the origin of humanity in Africa. But uh, what is this Nubia? Well, in, in this tech world, it is Twitter without the trolls. It is uh, Facebook without the algorithms and the selling of your data. It is Pinterest with black folk uh, all day. All not just black folk because it's through an Africana lens. So right. you know, we're always going to go to the original place that we all come all of us um and it is a social gathering of folk who like uh history and they they like tech and they like to plant some stuff and they like books and reading and they like to talk about the things they're going to talk about like i just dropped something that i want to drop in here uh well actually uraeus dropped it about big brother and so i wanted to talk with you about it and i know this is not normally what we do well, this is good because Saturdays we get to debrief a little bit, and today is important. There's been a lot going on this week. We talked about when we went live last week, people going back to school. Uh, we're geared up. We've been in faculty meetings. Uh, you know, we start, I think we both start the undergraduates next week, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, next Thursday and Friday, I start. Um, like... I had, I had class Wednesday night at, um, at Howard with the law students, and shout out to the Howard University School of Law, my students in my race, law, and change class just remarkable young people. Uh, the only the only students sitting there who have been together uh, for even a fraction of time were the third year law students who had been together for a semester and a couple of months, but every second year law student in there hadn't been on campus before. And the one else, uh, I ran into one, uh, two of first year law students as I was walking up to, uh, to, the, to campus and uh, they were Howard undergraduates and I hadn't seen them. Mm. And, so when we when I came in the classroom, it's masked up and all this. I uh, immediately, you know, obviously we went around. Everybody introduced themselves. I'm always greatly impressed, um, as I tell people all the time. The students at Howard Law School, many most of them didn't go to HBCUs undergrad. And in fact, this is my first class in over a decade where every student in that class did not go to an HBCU undergrad. They're all from all over the country. And anyway, I don't get too deep in that. We talking, but the reason. No, but the reason I bring it up, because I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to hear where we're going to go with, with Big Brother. I'm just mentioning it because um, in our conversation, we're feeling our way. And it was striking the fact that none of us have been inside a building 
at a university since then. And yesterday I was yesterday morning, Friday morning, I spent uh, the morning with my, my dear friends and colleagues at Sankofa Freedom Academy in Philadelphia on Zoom. I was on Zoom, they were all together. Their students will be coming in the building next week in Philly for the first time in a year and a half. And the anxiety is real. The anxiety is real. And we saw Thursday, the faculty at Spelman told the administrators at Spelman, we are gonna teach our classes. We sure are uh, remotely because we don't trust, we're not clear about the protocols. And quite frankly, I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't know that anybody, anybody who says they're clear about protocols and observing them, I'm gonna put them a little bit adjacent to somebody who's in a fantasy. We are working this thing out day by day, Professor Hunter. And, and I, now you'll be, you'll be returning to the Manhattan campus of, wait. No, 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 Karen no. will be on Zoom and her students will be on Zoom and, and until further notice. And yeah, Delta, Lambda, Zeta, Beta, whatever. Yeah. Mm -mm. Lord have mercy. So anyway, I'm, I'm just saying, so Big Brother is real and uh, we are all encountering Big Brother. And uh, yeah, I'm going to be remote as well. My, my Howard Law students, that class is small. Uh, it's intentionally small because we do a lot of intense work with reading the law. We're doing work they do uh, semester long. They work on research papers. There's a lot of back and forth. Uh, but we are playing it week by week because we know that all this thing could turn on a dime. But my big classes over in the undergraduates, yeah, we'll be doing those uh, from the library. And by the so, library, I mean the library that we're talking from right now. <laughs> we're not, one of our own creation. Let me so let me just um, shout out all the educators. Um, you please. guys. Um, we raise right a glass to y'all, colleagues. Yeah, Kindergarten through the old Come on classroom no question especially those teaching the younger grades because mm -hmm. you know you it, it must be like wrangling cats right now like I can't even imagine uh teaching little kids at this point god bless everybody out there I know a lot of parents are keeping their kids home a lot yes. of sending their kids with much trepidation because you don't have options and choices I just had a, a lengthy conversation with a woman who was just doing that with her two kids and it's like you know um you have to put what's important first and the health and my family, money will come and go. And I think as soon as many of us wake up to, yeah, we got to feed ourselves and we have to, you know, have some creature comforts. We got to have a roof over our heads, but at what cost? And, you know, some of us have put that first, you know, all of the things, but I think we're learning really quickly that those things can come and go and they mostly go. Most so, so, so what now, what kind of- Okay, all right, all right, all right. So- I watch a lot of television and I know you're like, how do you watch so much TV? Well, cause I, well, you know, I know now y'all see what I know the secret. You don't sleep. But anyway, cause half the time when you say something, I'll be like, oh, that was like four in the morning. And, and look, people don't know. That's what, anyway, let me not even do that. So yeah. I, I kind of figured out some of it. I sleep, I sleep when, when there's no more time left on earth. Oh, um, yeah. What did Nas say? I never sleep. Cause sleep is the cousin of death. Now yeah. that don't mean you should, uh, yeah. not maintain your health but some yeah. of us can go with a few less hours and you one of those remarkable human beings professor uh -huh. well, go ahead so you watch TV. it's not good so so i watched this thing called big brother i watched it from the beginning right and and it's a, a remarkable you know sitting in class with you every every week and and sometimes during the week you know i'm reminded of how conditioned we are to just accepting things when we don't exist in that space right so for 23 22 seasons big brother 
has had you know about the big the big brother we all know the television show television the, show on cbs yes yeah okay i'm taking us into frivolity today y'all just get no, no, over no, that's not frivolous i didn't even know it was still on it's oh, still exactly on. it's still on 23 seasons all right dr Carr, don't troll me and everybody out there don't troll me so listen i'm not, I'm not trolling you i'm i'm learning look okay you playing. Don't you see my pen? Every see y'all see when I look down, I'm writing something down. Go ahead. <laughs> so this season, for the first time, and this is uh, the C CBS chief executive order that every unscripted show has to be 50% Black, Indigenous, and people of color. This has never happened before. So I'm bringing this up because I, I really, you know, I wanted uh, your opinion on it, but I find it fascinating. So for the first time ever, I've watched it in spite of there only being one or two Blacks a season, Got my feelings hurt always, you know, room for the black people. They always have to navigate and figure something out. Now it's a social game. You're in a house with people who aren't from your culture and you have to navigate. What's what we do in the world, right? It's what we had to do in the corporate office and many of our universities. You, you navigate these spaces, right? So it's a great social experiment to watch, right? So 22 seasons, no black person's ever won. No black person's ever gotten to, you know, to, to the finals. And I'm sitting there this season and I, I've noticed, I was like, there's a lot of black people in this house. Almost day one, they formed an alliance called the cookout. The cookout. And the goal was to get every single black person to the point where this one lady, Tiffany said, we got to take a white person with us as a pawn, you know? So each of us got to pair up with a white person. I mean, it, so I'm like, now white people mad, so-called white people. So the LA Times has a piece. <laughs> And they're like, the, the uh, headline of the piece is, uh, I'm going to read it, a big brother alliance could make history. Not everyone is thrilled. So in this story in the LA Times that came out this week, they're talking about how this cookout is really disturbing white people. I'm going to read a quote. Um, <laughs> hold on. I'm, I'm scrolling through it. Um, there's, cer there's certainly a lot of racism expressed by the Big Brother fan over the years. So, so just so you know, backstory, there's been a lot of racism in the house, obviously, because when there's one or two Blacks, you know how folk act, and, you know, and you're living with them. So there's always comments about people's hair and cocoa butter and bull crap. And then it got even more egregious one season. And I even started watching it like overnight just to see what would happen because it was so crazy. But um, it's just crazy. You know, somebody said in there, you know, if this were a group of white people doing this, CBS would shut it down immediately. And I'm like, hold up. Y'all do it every season. Every season. You do it in the world. That's all we live under is white alliances. That's right. So you, you're you mad now that you get to see it play out. And I knew it was going to be a problem, Dr. Carr, because I was like, why? the problem is Black folk, we can't not talk about it, right? White folk never have to talk about it because they already know they're in an alliance. It's built in, it's baked in 400 years plus. Ooh, they ooh. already know. So they don't have to say, huh, let's have a group over here, call it the white power group. Mm. And sure that we vote out all. So the Asian guy, the one Asian guy was like, hey, um, all of the white guys have been voted out. Like he he noticed it. Like, like now we're like four or five weeks in. Or uh, he was like, hey. There are no white guys left. There'll be no, for the first time in history, he said, there'll be no white men on the jury for the first time in history. My goodness. And, and so while folks lose their mind, it looks racist as F from a black perspective, watching black people go, all right, we got to get this guy out. We got to get him, you know, and they're, they're literally eliminating the white people from the show. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it, but I know that there, 
but this is what we experience all the time, right? Without it being spoken verbally. So I'm just, you know, uh, I just wanted to bring that in and juxtapose it to Jeopardy, another frivolous thing, but you know, the white executive producer who then gave himself the job, who yeah. then they, oh, they didn't, as everybody's saying. Yeah, but then he didn't vet him, you know, he didn't vet himself. Like you didn't know you had these problematic things in your background before you decided you want to take over for Alex Trebek, who says expressly that he wanted a black woman to replace him, but you didn't do that. Laura Coates is who he actually named out of his mouth. He mm -hmm. named her out of his mouth. Anyway, Alex Trebek before he died. Well, he's an employee, so he doesn't get any say. That's capitalism at work. I well, mean, I just find it funny now that, you know, they do what they do and then it blows up. And now they're probably going to put a black person in there. Like here, Negroes, like, shut up. This is what you want. Help me. Shut walk up. me through that a little bit, because I know that you uh, kind of led, uh, well, one of the anchors in the campaign, I won't say campaign, it's the wrong word, in the attempt to generate some consensus and momentum to get our brother LeVar Burton in that chair and the pushback against this uh, Mr. Dabalina, Mr. Bob Dabalina, whatever his name is. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm thinking about Dale, the funky hope of Samia, Mr. Bobalina, Mr. Bob Dabalina. In other words, all y'all have the same name. This is the normative for the white maleness. But uh, what the pushback was to bring the woman in, is was that a response? I don't, I'm trying to understand. I have no idea. She I'm, comes I'm, on the weekends, I'm trying, uh, once a month. I, I, what? No, so they got my what's her name? But Balik, the what's Blossom? Blossom's been so. coming in for special things. She's white. She's not even black. Right, so right. They, they doubled down. They were like, not only are we not gonna put LeVar Burton in there, we're gonna not even put any black people anywhere near Jeopardy. Now that's blown up. I know they're gonna have to do this now. I'm just saying. Say that. Because they're gonna have all right. So you back at you. Why why don't you I'm just saying, you know, it's interesting because the big brother metaphor again. This is us, right? This is us on Saturdays, and this so is us really in narrative. When we apply this Africana studies framework, it seems that those first two categories, social structure and governance structure, let's understand one thing. They are first, they're artificial categories. They're just categories that allow us to ask questions so we can order our conversations and our searches. However, in the real world, we see how they operate. Those two categories, social structure, who are Africans, other people, and governance structure, who are Africans to each other, they much is revealed when they touch each other. And that big brother metaphor, big brother example you give is the perfect example. The social structure is, is used to seeing us the way we want it to see us in order for us in the governance structure as we talk to ourselves and debate and disagree and agree and reach consensus, in order for us to survive, we carefully calibrate who yes. we are to other people. So the idea that this group of black folk in response to you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey and the fear this time last year that this whole thing was going to implode, they've conceded now because they do realize that people are turning away. More people every week watching us, more people joining narrative and all the other places that they can't control. So much so that even somebody like Rachel Maddow is like, well, maybe I won't come back to MSNBC. I've been thinking about going online. Yeah, because ain't nobody watching. I mean, <laughs> So of course they're trying to concede concessions but I'm saying all that to say that in this example you've given us, the concession, oh, we got to bring some more non-whites in, but we have to manage that because the, the goal ultimately is control, is power. Right. So, you know, the diversity. Uh, it, 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 no, it, blew up in the, it blew up in their faces, right? So yeah. I think they thought they, 
they think they know us, right? So they put, you know, a very, very eloquent uh, black lawyer in there. They have a woman who's African from, you know, she's black American, she's American, but she, her roots are Cameroonian, she's from Cameroon. They have a, uh, a young lady in there who's half Indian, half Jamaican, I think like Kamala Harris. They have a, a black man who's half Mexican, half Dominican. They have, you know, they have, of course, Tiffany, who is a phlebotomist, who also braids everybody's hair. So she's a sister from, you know, from a, you know, a neighborhood near you. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so they handpicked the Blacks thinking that there would be some friction. Joe Frazier's gay son is there. And I say that because, you know, they had to throw... No, they're checking out boxes. Yeah, they're they're, they're checking the boxes, right? Yeah. Day one, they're like, Black, 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 just what you... So, so it it to me exposes and I was almost like, damn, I wish there was a place they could go where we couldn't see them do that. Because you and I know we do that mostly anyway, but they got to see it and they don't they don't feel comfortable. The LA Times for them to write about it tells me the fear that they have that we're gonna come together and bam, but nobody's getting hurt or killed. We're just forming alliances to protect well, well, me, the end and win. Let me ask you a question about this very, very specific um, narrative with an N, not a K, right? But given what we know about quote unquote reality television, given what we know about the whiteness of the producers, the corporations that own these companies, and that includes uh, whiteface and commercial entertainment media, which I would include news media, particularly given the decimation of newsrooms, you know this better than I do. Uh, well, um, so I would include the LA uh, Times. In fact, I think is the Tribune. I think Corporation do they own the LA Times at this do. point. I know they own Boston. I know they re they rebought the Daily News, and I think they sold it again. Um, yeah, exactly. They've been, you know, I mean, I mean it's fat. I mean, when basically, you know, y'all y'all see what's going on while we're having these conversations. It's on the front page of today's Financial Times again. I read it every day on the front page of the Financial Times. You see the mergers and acquisitions. One of the big areas right now in the world that they're having this conversation about. Uh, uh, what did Du Bois call them at the turn of the century? The white rulers of the world, the white rulers and shapers of the world. They're having conversations about futures. So one of the world's largest futures corporations is now trying to reacquire one of its spinoffs because they're now looking at what futures are. And of course, what do we see? We see the depression of oil and gas prices. Uh, parenthetically, if you want to talk about Afghanistan, please understand that uh, while people are here in the United States talking about Joe Biden and talking about Donald Trump, talking about what we did, didn't do. First of all, ain't no we, but Russia, Russia and China, China and Pakistan are moving and they already were running Central Asia, but many of the countries that abut uh, Afghanistan are some of them are former Soviet Socialist Republic, uh, the United States of Russia, as you could call them. And of course, remember that Afghanistan in many ways is Russia's Vietnam. And for 10 years, uh, since people don't talk about we, would you say we if you say we uh, paid Osama bin Laden? But anyway, but the point is to keep Russia control back. But I'm saying I have to say hey, that. Pause there for a second because the minerals, you know, we, we oh, talked yeah. about Osama bin Laden and we're talking about poppy fields. Yes. But it's the one trillion dollars in minerals that would make, if there was peace there, uh, Afghanistan one of the wealthiest nations in the world because they they're unique. I don't know. Go ahead. No, no, no. That's right. No, 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 no. In fact, we tie this together. You know, I mean, the reason I bring up Afghanistan is uh, so that we always two things. Number two, that we always remember that you cannot rely on the propaganda machines 
which include commercial news entertainment media for your narrative, because you're absolutely right. Now the narrative they're pushing is that the Taliban's gonna suppress women's rights uh, internally. That's a real concern and a real conversation, but understand that Sharia law, which isn't the law of the Quran, but basically the sayings of Muhammad, uh, uh, Islamic court judge, judge decisions that go back time and time again. Again, I mentioned last week when we were live, the um, Arabic literature of Africa. This is a big book of sources on the Africans who wrote in Arabic, including Ahmed Baba, going all the way back to the 12th and 13th centuries in Western Sudan, Timbuktu, Gal. So it isn't just Arabs, it's people, but, but the, the, uh, the so-called um, Sharia law is coming from, not from the book itself, but from interpretations. And there are interpretations that run the full gamut of Islam. If you go to Senegal, if you go to Mali, if you go to play, I mean, you will see uh, and among other traditions, something they call the Sufi tradition, which is a broad category, which talks about different people who have different interpretations of Islam. And much of that in, in Africa, Western Africa in particular, is shaped by the cultures of the African people who then embraced Islam. So when you start talking about women in Islam, that doesn't mean anything. You got to be much more specific. On the other end of the spectrum, you got those Shia, you got the Saudis, for example. Now, yeah, you're gonna see some hardcore anti-woman stuff that they will use Islam to justify. Shoot, they damn near look like uh, Amy Comey Barrett, who's on the Supreme Court. You know, that whole handmaiden's tale narrative about them white Catholics that she comes out of. So don't get cute when we start talking about oh, Islam and women. Okay, what about Christianity and women? You better go back and read your American history. In fact, don't even read it. Just go ask Amy Comey Barrett about that group that she came out of, them, them ultra-conservative Catholics. But anyway, I said I would say that, when you say the Taliban, these people are uh, religious convert. They got their way of knowing. They got their, their hardcore rigidity. And when they were in charge the last time, yeah, women can't drive. They can't go outside without a hug. And now they've been through occupation. They've been through occupation for 20 years at a cost of a trillion dollars to that could have gone to health care and education and making sure. But the United States dumped all our taxpayer money over there for 20 years. And now... They are like, okay, they're gone, but they're looking over and who is conducting exercises in the country right next door? The Russians, and they don't pull their tanks right up to the border to say, look, we run this and y'all better loosen up on some of this gender stuff and this voting and all this other because when they leave, we'll come back. Because remember, before they were there, we were there. In fact, they paid Osama bin Laden to run us out, but we're back now. And guess who's also over there? The Chinese. And guess one of the things that they're securing is the oil pipeline. This is where I'm going with this. So when you start talking about commodities like oil, China has a huge interest. They've already got the pipelines there. They're the Soviet, the Russians, not Soviet Union, the Russians are there, they've got, but oil is receding in terms of commodity value as these companies go to clean energy. Clean energy isn't just about global warming, although it needs to be and it should be. It's also about futures, which is where I'm going. And as you said, the one thing they're not making any more of are those precious metals and minerals. So when you open up the New York Times or you look at MSNBC or you read the Wall Street Journal and they say, we have to work because the Taliban is sitting on precious minerals that the world needs. Okay, if you believe that, you're the same people who believe wrestling is real. You're now going for propaganda because what they're saying is we have to surround the Taliban whether it be the International Money Fund that announced they're not going to give any loans, whether it be the European Union and the United States saying they're about to pull their credit. See, always pay attention to when the so-called uh, international community, capital I, capital C, that's shorthand for the white people. 
Europe, <laughs> United States, and whoever they got with clients who gonna go along with them, like Japan sometimes, sometimes Brazil, it's gonna do it. When they say we're going to withdraw credit, what they're saying is we gotta get a handle on this so we can keep those minerals coming, so we can keep whatever else we want out of there coming. And I'm saying that to say that when we look at narratives and we start debating using those same talking points, we are now completely away from the reality of what's really going on. Now we think about that in the context of Big Brother. The question I was gonna ask you is, given the nature of these reality shows, given what we know, and again, you see, Professor Hunter, you talk and listen to and with people in those spheres every day, and have been doing it every day for years. So you understand this a lot more intimately than I do. I typically understand it through reading, listening to folk, and then a lot of times, particularly over the last maybe 10 years or so, because now it's been almost 30 years since I've been teaching, my former students who find their way into that. So a lot of those Black people, they hire because they realize they can't just keep running out white people now. The Hollywood agents, the people who work in some, some of them are my former students. And so unlike the people that you just described in Big Brother, they're not talking about the cookout in mixed company because they understand part of their survival mechanism yes. re relies on the secret. But I'm about to ask you this because what I get from them and you can confirm or deny or, or try to complicate this, this is a question I'm gonna ask. How much of what we are seeing, what you just laid out, do you think is organic? And how much may be scripted to attract more eyeballs? Because as you're talking, I'm saying, maybe I need to watch an episode. Uh oh. Of Big Brother, which is okay. the, because these reality shows, I don't know, are all, are, aren't they scripted? I mean, they help are, me. They are scripted. So two things, two things. Yeah, please, true. please. Um, and I brought it up because, again, I wanted a light entry. I didn't know what, what you were going to do with it. And of course, we you, never you, no, you never disappoint. I was like, I'm not even going to tell him what I'm going to talk about. I'm coming with this frivolous thing and see what, and then you're going to bring it someplace deep. But for me, you know, you got me reading George Jackson, Blood and and and, and, yes. and, and so, and I'm reading it like every day. I'm doing a page and letting it sit in my spirit because the depth and the brilliance of what he's saying, again, he's speaking things that we can't talk about in mixed company. That's right. I slipped up almost this week on the radio and started talking about the brother's letter. And I was like, girl, what, what in the hell do you do? I had a, a whole ass conversation with myself live on the radio. What are you doing? While you were talking, your brain <laughs> yeah, I was like, mm, let me read. That's not what I mean. Hold up. I'm like, oh, shoot. You know, so. Look, I'm not the only one laughing. He laughing at you too. Oh my God. <laughs> No, but it's, 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 but let me let me put a footnote right there. That's how you have to read blood in my eye because it was written the way you're reading it. This man was doing hard time, most of his solitary confinement, every word he thought about. So you don't read it fast. You're reading it like he wrote it. That's the way it was supposed to be read. But it's, it's messing me up because he said something <laughs> profound and this is what brought me to the cookout. He said, when we realize we have been duped into believing the power that's not really there, I was like, and you think about everything that we do, we've been made, you got to have this car, you got to have this job to be valid, this degree, you got it, you know, these are the things that validate you. So we're chasing and running and chasing after the things that everyone says we need to have to be accepted, which we never will be. So like, why are we trying to even be, so then one or two get through and then it's like, that's the aspiration and they're popping bottles, money ain't a thing. You know, we got baseball, basketball team, you know, I'm, I'm being shady, yes. But the point I'm making is- you you know, That was nice though, like you dropped that in there, yeah. right? But you know, and, and but it, it's intoxicating, right? So you, you're asking a valid question, but I'm gonna say the people that they selected came in with an agenda. So I think they came in and it became clear because they came together, like you say, like Voltron, 
they met in the kitchen. They're like, okay, we're going we gonna to make sure we all get to the end. And so if it's scripted, the ratings are down, so it ain't really working. But it is, to me, an example of what I know to be true. So when we keep having this crabs in a barrel conversation, that's not really true. When no. two or more of us gather in his name, we, yeah, come, to, also. we, come, <laughs> to, we come together in a way and we've proven it time and time again, and they know it. And now it's on full display, which is what makes me nervous because I was like, I already know. Anytime Survivor has more than two or three Black people, Black people win. Last time Survivor tried that, breaking it up into tribes, every single, the last three finalists were Black. They said they had a Black tribe, an Asian tribe, a white tribe, yeah. a Hispanic tribe. The last three people left were Black. And I was like, I know what I know. They want us to believe, and George Jackson says that. When we stop believing the myths about their power, you know, the man, who's the man? You know, it's like, there's no all, all, all powerful control over our lives. No. So I, I'm saying also to say that, yeah, some somebody black will win, but there's also gonna be a betrayer on the team. And I don't know if that's scripted. So I'm like, yeah, so I already see the two and George Frazier's son, it might be one of them. But he's called calling a black woman to be where, I mean, I'm just like, yo. Oh, dude, really? You know, yeah, you're on TV. What are you doing? Is this scripted too? Yeah, conflict attracts eyeballs. Like you said, it may not be line by line script, but the idea of conflict and that idea of uh, of outing the cookout, which is something that, uh, mm. that younger people have become quite comfortable with in social media. The cookout is not something you talk about. If you think about the, the, the governance structure is not something we share with people. In fact, um, Chino Achebe writes about this in several of his, no in his novels. We, we, we all had to read his 1957 novel, uh, Things Fall Apart. Right. But if you follow in, in this, this the kind of Achebe trilogy that they uh, kind of attack, they attach with Things Fall Apart, Arrow of God, Man of the People, because he follows after a conquote, a main character in, in Things Fall Apart, he follows his family after the end of things fall apart. And so you see, they arrive at a stage and, and it really, it's really the history of West Africa, you know, Chebe uh, uh, is Igbo, but I don't wanna get too far in there. But the point I want to make is that in, in one scene in a subsequent novel, you have the story of the child of the Africans who were there before colonization. And this child has been brought into the Western model. So at some point he comes, he returns to his ancestral home to retrieve something very sacred to his people. So, uh, in, in, this, in this case, it's, the, it's, a, it's a sacred python, a totem for their memory keepers and their culture. He wants to get it, put it in a box and take it back to the Western school to show them that they have culture. And what Achebe is really helping us understand is the minute you do that, you have robbed your people of their potency. Mm -hmm. So the cookout is a sacred space. You don't tell people about the cookout. That's why the running joke is, well, you get an invite to the cookout. But then once you start talking about it, now there's a cookout. And then there will be a Negro who will say, I can become famous by making a documentary on the cookout. So I'm sure there's gonna be a cookout documentary, maybe Netflix, maybe HBO, where they interview different people and talk about the cookout and take the sacred Python and present it to the people, thereby robbing the cookout of vitality because shortly thereafter, maybe a year, maybe two years, maybe 10 years, whenever, there will be a white version of the cookout. Just like uh, one of my students at law school went to, went to Louisiana State undergrad, LSU. And I was asking him, I said, I've never seen this with my own eyes, but as an old HBCU marching band uh, alum, um, I have seen on YouTube 
the Louisiana State University marching band do a very sad and stiff version of the song that's in all HBCU bands repertoires and the school I work at now Howard University doesn't have the biggest marching band but I must say uh, that they have one of the best versions of this song because they they have had the sense to integrate the soundtrack of Washington DC go-go into their percussion section and that song of course is talking out the side of your neck <laughs> when you see an HBCU band everybody got a version of talking out the side of your neck I look on YouTube and then I see the LSU band talking out the side of your neck <laughs> I said now I know they was over there listening to Grambling and Southern particularly Southern that's in Baton Rouge right there where LSU is and and as small a town as Baton Rouge Louisiana is those of you in Baton Rouge know the twain never meet. <laughs> the LSU and Southern in the same little town, state, and they don't never meet. So I asked him, I said, have you seen that? He said, yeah, I can confirm. I've seen them do that. <laughs> but I'm saying that will be the next iteration. There's going to be a white cookout, y'all. And there's going to be some Black producers on the show because the gateway, the point of entry is going to be the Black version of the cookout documentary or movie that is presented to Hollywood. And I think about our brother, Holly Garima, I love, mm, I was listening to Holly one day last week and Holly asked a, a deep question. He said, where is Hollywood? Now this is a man who went to school at USC, so-called LA Rebellion. You know, it's a man who's going back out there because uh, I don't know how she did it. Shout out to her. It's clearly because of her vision and commitment to this question of how we get free in some ways. But Ava DuVernay has convinced Holly to conduct a masterclass out there on the West Coast with young filmmakers. And he don't do that kind of thing typically. Wow. So I said, so I'm sitting there listening to him, And he said, I asked him, where's Hollywood? Is it on Wilshire Boulevard? Is it, he said, you know what Hollywood Boulevard is? He said, Hollywood Boulevard is a scar. He said, Hollywood Boulevard is a skeleton of white men's names and footprints. I mean, he just, I mean, but, but he, he didn't think about, he just, he speaks in poetry. Young people say he got bars, but I'm saying they're going to manufacture a cookout and some of us are going to help them do it. So to hear you talk about these, uh, this narrative where they formed alliances and we know conflict drives reality shows. We know then that what we're probably going to see, there's got to be a betrayal. That's in the script. Now they, they may not script how it comes out, Wow. But even and even it might be even they, they bring somebody to the side and say, look, I know you don't want to have conflict, but one of the reasons we cast you is because we think you can rise to the occasion. So the question then because so I mean there may be some tearful we need a Judas. Judas, we need a Judas, right? Judas and the black messiah. No, we need a framework. And so go ahead. But I, I just no, so I brought it up because like do well, and it's going to always lead me back to Nubia, but you know, it's like, yeah. do, we, do we participate in these things? Do we watch these things? You know, for me now, it's like, I got my notepad out and I'm watching for different reasons. I'm not watching for entertainment anymore, even yeah. though I'm mildly entertained, but I found it interesting and fascinating. And it's also, you know, in, in, in light of the census, you know, which I, when you brought up last week, I was like, don't say it out loud, Dr. Carr, because they already in their feelings about, you know, but why am I afraid? They already don't have the power. And this is a, uh, the utterances that we see is a manifestation of weakness. You are showing how weak you are by how angry and you storming capitals and stuff. Those are the actions of weak people. That's right. Weak people do that. Weak, right. weak people who don't have power got to be in the streets screaming and yelling about mass and, and my country and the election and stuff. That's weakness. So I'm like, it is weakness. So I well, should, yeah. 
it's weakness, but it's also, well, no, not but, not but. It is weakness, and we have to pay carefully. First of all, I think what you do, and I do it, but not nearly to the degree that you do, and given the fact that you reach so many people, that makes it that much more, it's almost a responsibility. I'm sure there are times when you say, I would rather not watch this, but I know people are listening who do watch this. So let me go ahead and watch this because they're going to want to know. So I, I, I appreciate, I respect and admire that that quality because it isn't always fun, but but I do think it is a, a responsibility and it's something that's necessary. That's number one. Um, number two, as you are doing it and as all of us are doing it to some degree, we have to be mindful of the fact that if we don't have a place to stand, we won't know what to do once we've seen what it is. And so, as you say, you got people saying, you know, I'm not going to wear my mask. I'm not going to get vaccinated. It's my choice. It's freedom. Uh, uh, and I'm sure that when the lawsuits are filed, that will work their way through the state courts. Um, one of my former students, uh, my man, J.P. Howard, just got uh, nominated by Biden to be on the district, uh, D.C. Court of Appeals. And so very quietly, Biden is staffing the courts and some of those people, many of them, which is why we got our money on Kentaji Brown Jackson to be the sister who they elevate to the Supreme Court from the United States Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit. You're seeing them begin to populate, but that only that's only possible because in the social structure, the frameworks for power, the political framework, electoral politics, the corporate framework, business, they, are either allowing it to happen or not trying to prevent it. So when somebody says they're not going to wear their mask, and then the governor of a state, because they want to run for president, DeSantis in Florida, Abbott in Texas, say, we will back you, that takes it away from a powerless individual and puts the power of the state apparatus behind it. And then that threatens our lives. So as we're watching this and seeing these crazy people we have to always be mindful to take our analysis out of the framework of individual crazy people and reset it in the context of a social structure because this is structural formations going on. So this, 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 I mean, and we have to pay very strict attention to it. And so the reason I raise that in this context is that when we see a structure yield, that structure is adjusting to something it doesn't have control over yet. And right now, what we're seeing, if we can generate our power, we have to understand that we must engage in that social structure, but we always have to tend to a base, a governance base from which to engage it and come back and forth. That's the philosophy of Marunish. And that's why everyone who has joined narrative and who is participating understands, I can now move through the structure fortified because I have a governance space where I can think through this unencumbered by having to explain my humanity or hide this piece. And here we are in Black August, which is not a time of celebration, not a time of commemoration, but as George Jackson reminds us and all our political prisoners remind us and all the rebellions, the Haitian Revolution, Nat Turner Rebellion, here we are Saturday, August 21st, the anniversary of the 1831 rebellion. They remind us that this is a time when we remember that whatever else we're doing, whatever other engagements we have, whatever the necessary engagements we have, we must always tend to a place where we can be unvarnished in our humanity and think about the way we want to be in the world. Because without that, we become figments of other people's imaginations. That's all we are. That's all we are. And that, that's no way to live. In fact, it's not living at all. And as the great Steve Lynn Morris 
I once uh, sang, when you believe in things you don't understand, then you suffer. Stevie tried to tell us the same time George Jackson is writing. He said, superstition ain't the way. When you believe in things you don't understand, you suffer. It's, he put it right there. Now we be bopping, we be bopping. Then he gives us all the seven years, bad luck, <laughs> the mirror broke. What are y'all doing? When you believe in things you don't understand, you suffer. And, 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 and you know, I think there's something very powerful in that period of the 1960s and 70s, culturally. We keep coming back to it. When we talked about the black church, when we talked about black, we talked about black music, that period, right after the change in the federal laws, but before the kind of dissipation of the black institutions that American apartheid had, not intentionally, but had served to contain us in a place where we had no choice but to be in these conversations. That period after the laws changed, but before those things began to dissolve, in some ways, May, when we look back after this thing has fallen apart, dissolved, and be renegotiated, we may look at that period of the 1960s and 70s as the most important period in the African experience in this settler colonies. It wouldn't be the end of slavery. That's, of course, but that's also a very complicated thing. Enslavement was, was grounded in Black resistance, but the structure saw that it didn't, it didn't have to maintain chattel enslavement in order to expand its criminal enterprise. So what you saw in, in, in 1861 to 1865, the elements, the corporate elements, the emerging corporate elements, the emerging business interests, and the political interests in this country gained the upper hand on the recalcitrant planner class, white nationalists, and were able to, first they had to break them, then they came to a truce and they said, oh, so we ain't got to feed and clothe these Negroes. No, we can keep this going. We don't need that. Now we're gonna punish y'all for the cameras and some of us actually believe it, but then we'll get back together and we can run these Negroes from now on. But of course in the government structure, black people had their own ideas. It took us a century to fight our way into what Bob Moses calls some proximity to what he calls constitutional people. He said, because we came into it as constitutional property, we're still trying to become something other than constitutional property. But by the 1960s, the concession then, which changes because the world has shrunk in that hundred years. Why? Technology has shrunk the world. The expansions of European empire have reached their limits and now they're fighting each other over what they think they took from other people. And so you see World War I, World War II, by the time you get in the 1940s, what you see is the world has to be renegotiated because the world is majority non-white. The capitalist structure that emerges in the 15th century and really takes root in the 16th and 17th centuries, that is going to be renegotiated by people who are no longer going to, you can't control them under colonialism, whether it be Asia, whether it be Latin America, whether it be uh, Africa. And so what you then see is those concessions that we see in the civil rights movement are really part of a larger human freedom movement and the United States wants to retain relevance. They are giving concessions in a class fashion, really, to kind of make a truce, as Gerald Horn would say, with the kind of bourgeois element, the so-called black upper class. And as they do that, what you see in the 1960s and 70s for that brief moment, that window, black people in this country, culturally, politically, are still closely aligned enough to have common interests. And since then, there's been a long deterioration as that social structure 
as that social structure has tried to maintain control and cherry picked out of the governance structure, class elements, individuals, and tried to shape black political sensibilities. And, and one of the things I, I hope we get to talk about for a couple of minutes today, because I love this. I love this because we need, we need something like this. This is how we do in class. Somebody come in and start talking about Big Brother and we say, okay, now how can we have this conversation? And that's the, so I'm glad we're modeling that for folk. It didn't always, it, it's always heavy, but it don't always have to feel heavy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Everything's a metaphor. But I hope we get a chance to talk because I know the new Aretha movie is out. Mm. And I, as I suspected, and I mean, it's a movie, first of all, so I don't expect anything. It's a Hollywood movie. And as Holly said, where is Hollywood, right? It's in our heads, right? We believe in things we don't understand, we suffer. I don't care whether it's Cynthia Revo. I don't care whether uh, it's Jennifer Hudson. I don't care. Courtney Vance, a fine actor. Forrest Whitaker, I buy Forrest Whitaker every day and twice on Sundays in Godfather of Harlem. To me, I don't know who wrote that, whoever wrote that. They weren't writing Bumpy Johnson. They were writing Forrest Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker is giving life to every malevolent influence and he has ever had. I'm like, this guy, right? And the cat who's playing Malcolm. I mean, it's the, the cast is the, the sister who's playing his wife. I mean, just beautiful. But Clarence LeVon Franklin remains unimagined in American cinema. And if you, I mean, <laughs> no, but I'm saying that 60s and 70s framework, you can't, they picked out of this governance structure, Aretha Franklin songs. They didn't pick out Aretha Franklin. It's like, we want the music that makes us happy. We want the revenue that we get from the music that makes us happy. We want as little as possible of the governance structure even though until she took her last breath, Aretha, Aretha Franklin was determined that you will not separate me from my community. And once again, they figured out a way <laughs> to make this about conflict and romance and bristling against patriarchy. Mm. I don't know. Have you have you have you interviewed any of the folks, the cast? I know you probably got some teed no, up. No, I haven't. I haven't yet. Um, I, I think I'm gonna have the director on next week oh wonderful yeah black woman i forgot her name i apologize y'all can google search it and then drop oh it I, you know what i read a couple I of reviews. really quickly go ahead i read a couple of reviews i'm trying to remember she did she came to it from something very recent huh. um and again this is this is not a question at least in my mind of gender mm -hmm. i mean opportunity is a beautiful thing for anyone but but again as you say you know What's real? Liesl, Liesl Tommy, she's South African. Yeah, but she did something. Did, did she do something right, recently? Let me, let me look, let me look, let me look. This uh, is real time, y'all, so. Yeah, no, no, this, this is what we, and I'm sure there are people now who are gonna put in the comments and y'all hit there, smash that like button because in the social structure, we want the algorithm to just be destroyed. Do you see what, what, what she, uh, she did? She's director of Broadway uh, production of Deny Guerrero's um, Eclipsed. She Eclipse. did that. Uh, yeah. She was nominated for a Tony for the best direction of a play. And this is her directorial debut in yeah. Respect. Um, her name, she's from Cape Town, South Africa, born okay. during apartheid. Uh, okay. Interesting, interesting. You know, there's a lot of commentary about folk from other places. Right, I'm just going to- No, this. you know what, you know what? Let me, let me, let me, let me share with you so that uh, another Haile Garima gem 
listen. I, sometimes I just go, man, I sit there and listen to Haile. Brilliant. He was talking about some of his early experiences. You know, Haile Grima from Gandhara, Ethiopia, uh, his father. These are, he's a theater man. He was a theater man. They did drama. I mean, like live actors, right? He came to, uh, came to the United States uh, in the 60s to Chicago, then to California, moved into filmmaking. But he was telling me about the tensions that he experienced when he was approached by heavyweights who wanted to pull him into that, what Clyde Taylor calls the art culture complex, the Hollywood thing, the flashing lights, this kind of thing. Oh, we want you, we need. And every time along the line, as a young man who has all that stuff flashed in front of him, he would say, and this is a direct quote, because I like quoting for attribution. I mean, I can't wait till this memoir come out. I mean, this is, in fact, that's somebody we need to talk to. We need to get him on the name. I mean, my God. Holly, he said, you know, I, I told him I would never cast, he said, a foreigner black in a role where there should be a reminder black. Mm. Come on, man. I mean, it's another gem. He dropped another, he, he dropped another, in other words, he said, if, it, if the role calls for a Jamaican, I want a Jamaican. If the role calls from a, a kind of African Ghanaian, I want a Ghanaian because there are actors. He tell all that there are actors out there. They're looking for work from all those places. He said, but what we're not going to do, I'm not going to allow you to look away from what happened in this country. And he said, those actors, those black actors, I call them reminder blacks. See, what, what Hollywood don't want is reminder blacks. <laughs> so this and see again, then they get us to fighting. Oh, oh, we, they taking roles away. No, no, no. Y'all in the governance structure don't fight about this. You didn't set this up. They don't want that. Why? Because there's something very uncontrollable overflowing about a reminder black. So mm. with all with all with all due respect to some of the fine actors, I mean Idris Elba, for example. Idris Elba, if Idris Elba had been the age and this had been 20, 30 years ago and in glory, he had had his shirt off and they whipped him and that single tear going down his, yes, it would have been powerful. But when it happened to Denzel, it happened to you and me. That's a reminder, Black. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because we go to the movies and we never suspend our awareness of who these human beings are. <laughs> in other words, you know, uh, uh, the, the sister Cynthia Revo, she played Harry Tubman, she played Aretha Franklin, got great chops. I mean, you know, great, but never forget if they had been whipping on a sister who was born in the United States. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So Jennifer Hudson, even listening to her, and look, sister is talented, incredible. The Aretha movie made me go back get my DVD copy of Amazing Grace Ooh. and watch Aretha. Because <laughs> see, see yeah. Oh yeah, I got it right here. I mean, I, I get the DVDs because I don't trust that one okay. day they're going to pull the master switch and turn all this off. So I, like, I got a DVD player. Oh. That was, Amazing Grace was one of the most ooh. incredible. And I, and I did get to talk with Aretha's aunt. I got to talk with the director when that came out. Yeah, I'm, I'm not running to see this movie. I wasn't running. I mean, but, well, you know, I know you have to see it because you got to talk about it and you're going to talk to the director. I, I, I figured that I had to watch because again, we're teachers. Yeah. And, 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 and rather than get into arguments, this is the clean glass, this is the clean glass of water, right? We always talk about the clean glass of water. Rather than argue, we just pour a clean glass of water. If you want to see Aretha Franklin, watch Amazing Grace because you're watching someone who is supremely talented, but you're also watching the community. 
you're watching James Cleveland on piano, which uh -huh. means that then took you all the way back. Gospel Workshop of America before that. Now you're reaching back into something that you got to know something about that. I mean, I got all them albums over there, Claire Ward singers and all them people. And then when, when C.L. Franklin walk in with Claire Ward, everybody know what that is. You know what I'm saying? But you can watch Forrest Whitaker and C.L. Franklin Remains Unimagined in American cinema. You got to see, see, you have to understand that, in fact, go get the Sam Cooke documentary, how C.L. Franklin and them are looking for Aretha when she's out there on tour. Where is she? Where? Why are you sniffing behind Sam Cooke? But it's difficult for Aretha Franklin, who was interviewed in the Sam Cooke documentary, to say, yeah, we was all in love with Sam Cooke. Why are you in love with Sam Cooke? In part because your daddy was Sam Cooke in the 1920s and 30s. <laughs> you got to understand, when you see C.L. Franklin, this guy was, and I hate to use this phrase, but I'm using it to kind of put these things. He's a sex symbol in the pulpit. But he's narrated as a brute. The rumors persist. It Was he the father of Aretha's Look, man. Look, let me let me see here. Let's just shut all that down right quick because I don't want even, the, the best the best things to do if you want to read about CL Franklin, get uh the, the main interview with him was done with a guy, a professor at Cornell. Um, this guy is named Jeff Todd Titan. T-I-T-O-N. If you get the book, give us this mountain. CL Franklin gives. Uh, uh, he gives him a series of interviews that he then condenses and publishes in anticipation of a two-volume work that has a lot of his sermons. But uh, that's one book, and that's C.L. Franklin and his voice. But the other book you really want to get is Nick Salvatore's book, Singing in a Strange Land. This is C.L. Franklin, The Black Church and the Transformation of America. I mean, having read them both, and then not only that, C.L. Franklin has about 75 sermons that have been recorded and then uh, produced, and he used to produce them and sell them through like black record labels. He was the biggest minister there was. And uh, in fact, Aretha Franklin, when she sang at the inauguration of Barack Obama, presented the incoming president of the United States prior to coming out and singing with a copy, a set of her father's sermons. <laughs> you gotta understand. Now, in the social structure, Barack Obama is one of the great orators of our day. In the governance structure, he doesn't even get to come up on the pulpit and sit behind the preachers who could preach. But, but we understand because that's who he is to the social structure. But to us, look, y'all go get C.L. Franklin. You can get all of them. I, I think I have just about all of them because they, because over the years, they, they I have a lot of the albums, but then they moved to CD. I got the CDs and some of them out there, you can go on YouTube and just type in something like Satan goes to a prayer meeting. That's one of my favorites. You know, when he started, he said, C.L. Franklin say, when you see the devil at a prayer meeting, he rode somebody in. <laughs> so he, I mean, I mean, just the, just the, I mean, he, he starts that sermon, what does he say? Uh, in the, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, we find in the fourth chapter, beginning with the first verse, the following. You know, Jesus was led or guided by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness of the desert to be tempted. That is, tested by the devil. And he went without food, or pointing up for days and nights and later he was hungry and the tempter came to him and said if you are the son of god command these stones to be made bread but he replied it had been written man shall not live by bread alone 
so he goes on and he's got this cadence and then he goes on and he says, you know, we talk about Satan in the modern sense as a, as a concept or a metaphor, but let me assure you, Satan is real. And then you hear everybody say, and that he would build that up, never rushing it. Now imagine being a reaper. Imagine being Clarence. Imagine being Irma. Imagine being the children week after week after week listening to Clarence LeVon Franklin out of Sunflower County, Mississippi. The same place Miss Fannie Lou Hamer and her husband, Pap Hamer, worked on that plantation. Coming into Cleveland, Mississippi, his father left them when he was four years old, but Clarence LeVon's mother remarried. That's where he gets the name Franklin from, but the preacher in his line was his mother's father, who was a preacher, who they say was a preacher back before the end of enslavement and brought it in. Clarence LeVon Franklin, who at 16 years old, moves to Memphis because Memphis really is Mississippi. All you Memphis Negroes already know. And for anybody who don't know, that is, <laughs> that is Mississippi Delta. And where, where C.O. Franklin came from is where B.B. King came from, where Albert King came from, where all these blues musicians who he knew came from. And then he, uh, he, he enrolls at Lemoyne College, which become Lemoyne Owen. His wife, Aretha's mama, is from Memphis. She went to Booker T. Washington High School. Again, if, if, if when you pull on Aretha Franklin, you know who begins to fall out? All them people we talked about, we talked about Robert Church and Ida Bell Wells. This is Memphis, the blackest city in America at the time. He That's where he, he was an itinerant preacher, couldn't get enough at any one church, but then gets a pulpit. Then the, her mother leaves, goes to Buffalo. He goes to Buffalo with the family. They only stay there for a little while till he gets a call to a church in Detroit and that's Bethel. And that's where he spent the rest of his life. The great tragedy being the last five years of his life, he was in a coma because some cats tried to break in his house. They shot him twice. He was in a coma. The family moved him back to the house. Eventually they had to take him back to the hospital and he made transition in 1979. Jesse Jackson preached the eulogy because as you read in the uh, Give Us This Mountain, Jesse Jackson writes the introduction because C.L. Franklin preached Jesse Jackson's uh, installation sermon uh, at, uh, in Chicago, because Clay Evans at Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church. What does Jesse Jackson say at the beginning of that book about C.L. Franklin? Again, I don't blame generations that say, ah, oh, Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton. That is a phrase you should retire forever. We, we in the governance structure, we had arguments about who is this and that and what people did or didn't do. But when you combine those two names, you have glossed over something that you will completely miss. And you'll go to a movie and think you know something about people instead of just going in there, listening to the music, nodding your head, enjoying a scene or two, and then leaving, realizing that has nothing to do with reality. <laughs> you know what I'm but he caught, he said, Clarence LeVon Franklin was the high priest of soul preaching. He was known as the rabbi, the learned one. He said, Jesse Jackson said, every minister in the country either imitated C.L. Franklin or tried to not imitate him. He called C.L. Franklin the most imitated soul preacher in history. And I'm gonna tell you as a child, 
I knew that without knowing who C.L. Franklin was, because there's a station in in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. They don't play this anymore. They use, but those of you in the South know this. In fact, they're all over the country. It was a clear channel AM station called WLAC in Nashville. We talked about this before. They had white disc jockeys who sounded black. William Hulse Allen, the host man. I'm bringing it to you in Randy's record shop. I mean, they talking like, and you think they were black. At night, they played sermons. C.L. Franklin was probably, according to Nick Salvatore, the first minister to do live broadcast from his church in Memphis. He started at Memphis, you know, written them from Memphis. Like I said, well, Detroit claims them and they should claim, but they were born in Memphis. This was it. So when you hear him, you're hearing something. He became aware of, of his reach, but they used to play C.L. Franklin sermons. And then one of the people he had the greatest influence on, all of them he had influence. But the guy who also preached at his funeral, and you can go on YouTube and see some of C.L. Franklin's funerals, was a dude named Jasper Williams. As a, ch as a child, our favorite Jasper Williams sermon, they were playing it at one, two o'clock in the morning, WLAC, we in the room with the, with the lights off, listening to the AM radio low, so we, we gotta go to school next morning. But Jasper Williams get on there, I fell in love with a prostitute. <laughs> He's taking a biblical story, but the tagline is he gets it from C.L. Franklin. And when you hear a preacher go into the cadence, <laughs> my Lord, <laughs> I said, oh Lord, my God. So I say, you don't go to a problem, you go through a problem. Lord, and C.L. Franklin, by the time he get to the last quarter of his sermon, he done taken it to that cadence. And then you hear the organ. He's going to wrap it up with something like, Father, I stretch my hand to thee. <laughs> He's going to wrap. And when you hear Aretha, you hear CL, who had been singing like that since he was a teenage boy. And I love Forrest Whitaker, but brother, that's not your gift. <laughs> I don't buy. First of all, you got to have some kind of combination of bass and tremble in your spirit and your voice. I would rather hear you whisper as Bumpy Johnson in Godfather of Harlem. But what you can't do is preach like CL. You, my God. And it wasn't that CL Franklin's voice was so deep. He had pitch like Nat King Cole. He understood that much of preaching is cadence. He understood that sometimes you go up an octave and come down, but the power is in the whisper. You understand. Mm -hmm. Somebody know what I'm talking about that you bring in the people listening to you. Mm -hmm. my, my. And what Jesse Jackson said is everybody. And if you want to test that, it ain't no different than rock him in hip hop. Is there a before Rakim and an after Rakim? If the answer is yes, then you have your answer. Is there a before C.L. Franklin? And is there an after C.L. Franklin? And I thought about that because one of our responsibilities, isn't that something? C.L. Franklin, just imitating him brings a calmness in. Because what C.L. Franklin will force you to do, you got to listen. I didn't even, in fact, in fact, Professor Hunter, 
I'm gonna stop talking about C.L. Franklin. We're gonna reserve a long C.L. Franklin for narrative. You know why? Because, <laughs> because C.L. Franklin, when I tell you that the Republic of New Africa met at New Bethel and the police had to shoot out there, that was the Henry brothers who recorded Malcolm X's message to the grassroots. C.L. Franklin knew all those guys. When Grace Lee Boggs and Jimmy Boggs created something called Kenya Days, listening with C.L. Frank, uh, um, C.L.R. James and them in Detroit, it was C.L. Franklin that put Africa on the map. It was C.L. Franklin that spearheaded the committee that raised the money to send Detroit's black congressman to the funeral, um, to the trial of Emmett Till, Charles Diggs. C.L. Franklin then raised the money to send him down there. It was C.L. Franklin that walked in Detroit in August 1963. And then at Cobo Hall, Dr. King gave a version of the I Have a Dream speech before he came to Washington, D.C. I got the album. Barry Gordy and them pressed it and put it out. When you listen to it, and unlike the D.C. I Have a Dream, Martin King mentions Emmett Till in the 19th. If you listen to the speech he gave in Detroit and the one he gave a few weeks later in DC, it's the same speech with very few because black preachers don't never give a speech like that the first time that you heard it. No, they have been given, that's what the sermon, <laughs> they have been given that speech. They have been given that sermon. The first time that sermon saw the light of day that we heard in so-called I Have a Dream speech, King tested it out in Chicago, I'm sorry, in Detroit after marching through the streets of Detroit arm in arm with Clarence LeVon Franklin. So you can't really get, so we're gonna talk about, and get this book though, Stranger in a Strange Land. I just wanna mention this to you all because you say, well, who is uh, Nick Salvatore? It's, that's not the important thing. Let me just go to the acknowledgements. He says, I have been enormously enriched by the warmth, friendship and generosity in many in the Franklin family. Irma Franklin, CL's oldest daughter was enthusiastic about this book from the time we met and that feeling deepened as we traversed together the complicated issues inherent in the relationship between the biographer and her subject and the subject's loved ones. Her sister Aretha did not sit for an interview. This is what David Ritz said. I mean, if you read this latest one, Respect, Ritz said, I pushed her, pushed her to give. But see, Aretha took a lot of that stuff to the ancestral realm. But her family worked with Nick Salvatore. He says her autobiography, which appeared in late 1999, remains her account of her extraordinary family. This book came out between the first and the second autobiography of Aretha. She has been aware of my work, however, since my earliest visits to Detroit in 1998. Vaughn Franklin and his family were supportive and helpful, as was Carl Ethan Kelly. Brenda Colbert, a niece raised as a sister within the family, warmly welcomed me. They walked this dude through all the family in Detroit. So when you read this, this is the important thing, I'll, and I'll, I'll stop here and say, we're gonna save C.L. Franklin for narrative. The important thing to understand about C.L. Franklin is, just like Aretha and everybody else, when you see one of us in the social structure, it's not one of us, you see all of us. And what he really, what Nick Salvatore tells in this, in this history is not just the biography of C.L. Franklin, he tells the history of black institutions, the black church, the black music makers, the black record companies, the black, I mean, everything, get to Detroit, the great migrations, all of that stuff. So when you turn on a movie and you see a guy with a hat on talking a little gruffy, now I know y'all can't, you can choose what to put in and put out, but that's why Jasper Williams, look, we ain't got to agree with Jasper Williams. And certainly he stood up over Aretha and said some stuff and went left and right and left again. But the reason Bill Clinton had to sit back there and take it while sitting next to Louis Farrakhan, <laughs> 
Because <laughs> Aretha Franklin was never who you wanted to be when you just want to hear, you make me feel like a natural woman. She never let y'all cut her off from the governance structure. That's why she was beloved. That's why when Angela Davis was caught, she got on television and said, I will bail her out. I'll write the check. That's why she wrote the Panthers and said, I'm sorry, I can't come to your fundraiser signed, but I'm sending you a check signed Queen Mother of Soul. She didn't say Queen of Soul. That's y'all in Hollywood, wherever that is. She referred to herself as the Queen Mother of Soul. Queen Mother, that's a church title. <laughs> you understand? You got the mother's board and then you got the Queen Mother. You understand? But anyway, so. But it's Black August, and I know we're going. Uh, uh, we're going. We're going to wind us to a close. I did want to mention because today is the. Well, let me pause before we shift. I don't know if you want to say something about. No, oh, I just want to say thank you. Go ahead, take us to it. Today is August twenty first. Yes, it's a special day in our history. Yes, yes, and in fact, it's one that. You know, say it again. Say it again. I said Black August. This is because uh, I never heard of the term until last week. So thank you. No, no, <laughs> thank no, you. no, no, thank no. You. I'm like, Black August, how did I come no. today's year old just learning about Black August? No, well, because we know that Black August is something that can't be co-opted. It can't be absorbed. And by co-opted, I don't even mean co-opted in the sense that it can be perverted. Black August isn't the cookout. Black August is impolite. Black August is the home of those reminder Blacks. So mm -hmm. it's a reminder that Asada Shakur is in Cuba. It's a reminder that Jamil Alamine is still locked up for something that had, the case fell apart years ago. It's a reminder that everybody from Russell Maroon Schultz and all the people we talked about, all the people, Leonard Peltier, are still political prisoners in this country. And it's not polite to bring up America's dirty laundry. Yes, people love listening to Tupac Shakur, and they may be aware of Afeni Shakur, but then the minute you say Shakur, where'd that come from? That's the Shakur family, including Dr. Mutolo Shakur, still locked up. Oh, no, I don't want just Could you just play uh, Dr. Dre and, and, and Tupac again? I don't want to talk about to Yeah, these are the reminder Black. And so Black August is, is a time when we reflect on and connect to the thing that can't be avoided, the thing that uh, the politicians in this country who are saying that this is about masks and vaccinations when really what it is about is attempting to uh, cement white minority rule through the structure. That's really what this is about. It's not, I mean, the, anytime that you're telling people who voted for you, anytime they stick a microphone in Kay Ivey's face in Alabama and she says, well, I can't do nothing else. I done told them to go get a vaccine, but if they don't want to do it, they ain't got to do it. I mean, what else do you want me to do? Well, you told them they didn't need to wear no mask. Now they all sick <laughs> because you are willing to throw the people who voted for you overboard if it means you can retain power one more cycle. And whether it be DeSantis in Florida or Abbott in Texas or wherever, you're willing to sacrifice your own voters if it means you can retain power. But the problem we have is that that logic is premised on attempting, it would be like trying to stop the sun from coming up tomorrow or stop the tides from coming in. What is happening is you're about to be overwhelmed, not in terms of your politics necessarily, but in terms of the way you view the world because you've built your whole worldview on the idea that your identity 
is the thing that you must defend and protect, even though we all know that that's a proxy for crass things like power, political power, economic power. I'm saying not to say that in Black August, those who have worked the hardest to destroy that myth are the ones that you realize you can't negotiate with, you can't appeal to, you can't pay off, you can't offer them, there's no amount of money you can offer them, no kind of how. So therefore you must drop all pretenses and fight them. You must attack them. You must destroy them. You must imprison them. You must kill them. Dr. King, we'd like to, no. Well, what plan? I'm just, no, no, war is wrong. Yeah, and the Vietnam, okay, this guy got to be killed. In other words, you can't talk to him. The guy can't be, so he's got to be killed. Why, well, it was a conspiracy? Of course it was a conspiracy. But don't think of conspiracy like everybody meeting in a room. Sometimes conspiracy is setting the circumstances. Sometimes conspiracy is, let's say James Earl Ray killed Martin Luther King Jr. Although, you know, that's in Reclaw Pepper's work, even Judge Joe Brown, who sat over even Dexter King, Corinne Scott King before she passed away. Let's just say that he did do it. There were no police in surveillance of King and everything moving at the Lorraine Motel. Of course there were. Uh, there are no records of what you didn't know. Well, we can't find the record. Right. So don't think of conspiracy like they all got together, say, Ray, you go up there and then we'll have another sniper. No. No, you don't need that. All you need is the police, state, federal, and local to say, we're going to go take a lunch break. Crap. Whoa, what happened? What happened? Y'all been watching this man. You could tell us what he ordered for breakfast. And somehow in a little window, you wasn't watching. Just like y'all pulled them cops out the Audubon Ballroom in February 1965. And Malcolm went down. You could put it on the trigger people, but you could have stopped it like Gil Scott Heron said. If they can track these people after it happens, did you ever ask yourself why they couldn't stop them before it happened? <laughs> so the whole point is they worry about they didn't even anyway. So I'm saying I have to say that um, if you can't make a deal with people, you put the stick on them. And Black August, you couldn't make a deal with Jean-Jacques Dessalines. We talked about that extensively. You tried to make a deal with Toussaint. He made the mistake of listening to you. He died in prison. After that, to this day, you can't make a deal with the Haitians. You keep trying to prop up. <laughs> you got the guy now who is the uh, the prime minister of Haiti. We talked about that. He was the one who was in charge of the 2010 earthquake relief. He was also in charge of the cholera outbreak. And now he's the prime minister. He failed twice. So you gave him the job again. And here come the earthquake. Why? Because you need that man. But you couldn't compromise with the people of Haiti. You couldn't compromise with Jean-Jacques Dessalines, with Henri Christophe. So you just basically have to take them out. What we, what we talk about today, and I guess this is... Uh, 190 years from the dates, August the uh, 21st through the 23rd, 1831, when Nat Turner and his, uh, his, his fellow enslaved Africans, and there's so many books you can deal with on this, but um, they set out to free themselves. And on August the 21st, uh, anyway, and we want to talk, in fact, we might do Nat Turner in narrative too, but I'm just gonna give a quick thumbnail because what I wanna mention for a few minutes is what happens after Nat Turner. We know the name. We know that Nat Turner in Southampton County, Virginia, uh, owned by the Turners, several generations of Turners. Uh, Nat Turner, who was a, a minister, <laughs> interesting. They take the Bible and make it sing something else. <laughs> you understand? Nat Turner, who uh, his father and mother said that you were born for a special thing. You have a special gift. In fact, I would encourage people to go back and rewatch if you haven't watched it, uh, Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation, the film. They, and and then more importantly, get the companion volume. They did a book. Nate Parker surrounded that film with scholars. 
Please say that. Please. Yeah. I, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Tell, say something about that. No, because I mean, I, I'm I, one of the few people that, you know, and it was a lot of controversy and we, we get distracted so easily, you know, whether CL Franklin's, you know, proclivities or what have you, this is about reclaiming our history. Yes. Let's not get distracted by the things that they want us to be distracted. They did not want us to see that film. Nope. I watched that film. I encourage people to go see it. Nate, Nate Parker. I want to say Nate Turner. How about that? How about that? <laughs> There's things in there to this day, you know, the force feeding and all, I mean, all oh. of the visions. Go ahead, go ahead, Carm. No, 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 no. Please help me because oh, oh, be and in that film, first of all, we know, we know what we know there are multiple points of entry. That's why Holly Grima and Avery DuVernay are making films. They understand that some people are not gonna pick up a book first. But if you if that's gonna what you're gonna watch. In fact, I, I was listening to. Uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but just pick back up on the scholarship because that's what's missing. Yeah, well, that's what's missing. So I just I'm gonna pop that's out. Right. That's right. No, no, no. Yeah. Okay. Very good. All I was gonna say is that when you look at the when 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 you watch Birth of a Nation, there isn't a scene in there that isn't informed by research. Even the beginning, the four scenes when he's in, when he's got the people in the blue, you think, oh, this is crazy. No, read the book, read the companion book. Look at the uh, the role of indigo and blue in Africana ways of knowing and African spiritual systems. Look at the juxtaposition of colors. Even look at how it's lighted. When you pull on Birth of a Nation, you know what's going to fall out? Bush Mama, Child of Resistance. What is that? Those are early Holly Garima films. You got to understand the history of cinema to understand that even how you like Black people, a great deal of that comes from Black filmmakers in the late 60s, early 70s who are not Hollywood filmmakers. But anyway, when you read the companion book to Birth of a Nation, you get essays, short essays, explaining what's going on in the film and how you have to pay attention to the details. And we, we will do a long one in narrative on that because when the film came out, I too was very, you know, like, well, yeah, you gotta go see this film. People say, you know And I said, you know what? Here's the problem. Let's have a conversation about all of it in the governance category. But what we are not gonna do is have this conversation in the social structure category. Because we've got open enemies who want to play politics with something. And when you look at the, the, the end of the day, this shouldn't see the light of day. How did this get made? Okay, let's take it. Who is left? Again, conspiracies ain't everybody in the same room. It's a mindset. People on the same team who never met each other. But the team they on is stop it. The secret alliances that they naturally have that they exactly. never have to talk about. Exactly. It ain't like I say, it ain't even a secret. It's in our face, but we can't see it. And then we jump in and say, yeah, I agree. See, all right, no problem. But guess what? Y'all just gotta be mad. Or, or better yet, don't be mad. Let's have the let's have the discussion in Nubia. We had discussions for let's have a discussion in Nubia. So so come on, join narrative. Come on, Nubia. We had a discussion. So yes, birth of a nation is fascinating because you know, if that's your point of entry and you see Gabrielle Union going up in that house and you see those black people, including those brothers and sisters out there powerless to stop what's about to happen. And then it happens and she comes out and they put their arms over, come on sis. I'm like, so y'all gonna keep listening to these other people who will crucify you before look at you. <laughs> and you're gonna make common calls after seeing something like that. I'm gonna stop short of saying something's wrong with you and say, come on, drink a clean glass of water. Cause clearly you gotta have your system fleshed out. 
Ain't nothing wrong with you. It's what you've been eating. <laughs> you know what, I'm what have you been consuming that would have you not understand the poignancy of that moment, that violence? So Nat Turner grew up with, and of course we see that in the film. We see his mother, grandmother, and understand that according to the family history, Nat Turner's mother's line, they were Africans. Continental Africans, you see, you see that in the film, but you, when you read the confession, and there's only one document that attests to be what Nat Turner thought about anything, and that's the confession of Nat Turner. But the guy who took it down, a white lawyer, Thomas Gray, rushed it out into print to capitalize on Nat Turner's name to go make money. So there's no way to verify whether what was written was fully Nat Turner, what part is Nat Turner? What put his part is Thomas Gray trying to pump this up like this savage dude? Or some people, in fact, there's, there's, there are a number of books on Nat Turner. I only pulled a couple of them today. There's one, the most recent one. Let me see, Nat Almendinger. Oh, yeah. Here's one that just came out. This is an interesting guy. Christopher Tomlins is a, a law professor at Berkeley. He wrote a book called In the Matter of Nat Turner. It's very interesting. In the Matter of Nat Turner and a, a speculative history. And this is what you know, happens. Again, I'm, I'm here for all the writing, all the scholarship. I'm going to read it. I'm going to think about it. But we have to have our own. That's why we have a Black classic press. That's why we have a third world press. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I mean, I had to buy this at Princeton University Press, even though Princeton at one time was a place where if I was Black or you were Black, President, the only way we got there was we were the enslaved Africans of the white Southerners who came to go to school there. So I'm saying there's nothing Princeton can do to change its history, especially when it loves its history. Yes, it's going to interrogate its history. Yes, it's going to say, but what it's not going to do is shut down, give all the assets to the HBCUs. Why? Because it still reinforces the idea that it can be redeemed. It can't be redeemed in terms of the foundation. Now, can it go forward and do some great things? Is, is are people there doing great things? Absolutely. But what we're not going to do is continue to not have a place where we can interact with it, but not go to it like, this is my place. I live here. That means you ain't got no home. You're unhoused if your whole identity is wrapped around these institutions. You can't change their foundations, nor do they want you to because they just want to bring you in and give you a cap and gown. So understand. So in the matter of Nat Turner, you know, one of the things Tomlins talks about is maybe Gray, who took the confession, identified because he says he did. Although he also says, he, I looked at him and the blood ran cold in my veins. Maybe he identified him at some with him at some points and tried to humanize him. First of all, Nat Turner was a human being. He did not need humanization. So there are those, and most of these books say too, that Nat Turner was forgot about, forgotten about. And, and again, we'll talk about him more in narrative, but the idea that Nat Turner and his band of Africans and the context of rebellions that began in this country, not in 1619, but in the 1520s, my man Sam Livingston down in Morehouse College talks about the fact those Africans that the Spanish brought over here in South Carolina, and then Florida, those Africans revolted immediately, almost a century before 1619, and got away from them Spanish. And some of their children, uh, their, their descendants are still around somewhere because they got away. So 1619 is not a number that we should, 1619 is valuable in some ways because it reinforces the idea of British America. So in some way, it don't really retell the story. You, you say, us too. No, the story of resistance is the story of Nat Turner. 
And so from those early rebellions and then earth, uh, rebellions in the 18th century, New York, the rebellion, Stono Rebellion in South Carolina, uh, 1739, um, Nat Turner is born about a week after Gabriel Prosser in South, in South Carolina, in Richmond rather, Richmond, Virginia is executed. So they almost touch, he's born in 1800, Nat Turner is born in 1800, Denmark Vesey, uh, Nat Turner was born October the 2nd. And no, actually, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got that exactly backwards. Nat Turner was born October the 2nd, 1800. Uh, I think it was October the 10th, 1800. Gabriel Prosser is executed. So for about a week, they breathe the same air. <laughs> he is a Virgi Virginia is really the epicenter of a lot of this resistance. And to this day, which is where I really want to go with this. I'm not going to get too, too deep into it. He grows up, his mother, you know, nurturing him, father escapes. I mean, he gets away. We don't know what happens to his father, but he's raised by those women and by the women and men on the plantation. By the time he reaches the age of maturity, he is known as a young man with gifts. He's known with a young man with, uh, with, with, with abilities. They allow him to be a preacher. And in 1822, um, what do we see? You see in Charleston, South Carolina, Denmark Vesey. The Vizi Rebellion. In fact, oh, this is an interesting book. It isn't direct. Uh, if you can find a copy of this, it's worth trying to track down. And I didn't pull a lot of the books on these things because there's a lot of different ones. But um, see if you can find a copy of the great novelist, John Oliver Killens. Killens is a very important figure. In fact, Killens was a great influence on a number of Black writers, James Baldwin. Ah, yes, our sister Nikki Giovanni, who uh, Ruth Simmons at... Uh, Prairie View A&M in Texas has uh, convinced to spend a year at that HBCU as a distinguished writer in residence. They just announced it at the end of the week. Nikki Giovanni will be spending the coming year uh, as a writer in residence at Prairie View. And Ruth Simmons made a point, the president of uh, Prairie View, a uh, fascinating sister, made a point of saying, that's what we did with a little bit of that money that the $50 million that uh, the Amazon Mackenzie Scott gave us. In other words, see, I, I kind of trust it when you see somebody say, we got the money, we're going we to go get Nikki Jim now. You know, some of these niggas, I don't know what they're doing with the money. Oh, by the way, they're not. Anyway, that's, that's a whole other situation. But yes, the point I'm making is that uh, John Killens was the edited something called The Trial Record of Denmark Vesey. It's a little book, not a well-known book, but you see some of this kind of, Denmark Vesey, when they put them on trial, Y'all go look up a cat named Peter the Informer. We'll have to talk about that another day. I mean, you, you always got some narcs <laughs> in the situation. Nat Turner is just in his 20s when that goes down, 1822. Um, this is a book called Denmark Vesey's Garden, Slavery and Memory in the Cradle of the Confederacy. It talks about how these things are remembered. Remember, our fifth category in our conceptual categories is movement and memory. How did or do Africans remember these things? How do we remember Denmark Vesey? How do we remember Nat Turner? How do we remember the Stono Rebellion or Point uh, Point Coopy? When you heard uh, uh, Garrick Faria last week talk about Point Coopy, that was a huge rebellion of enslaved Africans, maybe the largest one in Point Coopy, Louisiana. And so all this is going on and they're terrified in America. You gotta watch these Negroes. In fact, Thomas Jefferson writing from Virginia said, we have in slavery, we have the wolf by the ears. Meaning what? We have to hold the wolf. We, so we gotta hold the wolf we can't let go of the wolf, but if we let and so, but if we let go of the wolf, it's gonna tear our throat out. We've got the wolf by the ear. Slavery is impossible. 
you can't control the wolf and you can't let the wolf go. So this, and so the rising tension, by the time you get to 1831, that's two years after this brother. I had to pull this copy because this is Black Classic Press. Paul Coates, you know, it's like Diddy and another one. Yeah, I thought I told you that we won't stop, except this is like for real. Thought I told you that we won't stop. This is David Walker's appeal, right? I don't know if you said that, David Walker's appeal. My man, James Turner, longtime head of the Africana Studies Center at Cornell University, the great James Turner. David Walker's appeal comes out of 1829. That's two years before Nat Turner. In fact, this is a Peter Hinks book, To Awake My Afflicted Brethren. Peter Hinks writes a book called To Awake My Afflicted Brethren, David Walker and the Problem of Antebellum Slave Resistance, which is an excellent treatment of the situation around David Walker. But if you want David Walker, you should just read David Walker. I mean, first, and then read the other books. So Nat Turner in Virginia comes of age at a time when people are terrified. They're terrified that these Africans cannot be uh, cannot be contained. So by the time you get, but by, by the end of the 1820s, he's beginning to have visions and dreams. He sees drops of blood on the corn. This is 1825, 26. He's seeing black angels fighting white angels in his dreams. Uh, he sees hieroglyphic characters. That's what he says in the, uh, in the confession. I saw these different scripts. And when you look at the film, Birth of a Nation, you see those images. These aren't like, what is he doing? Get the book. You need the key. There's nothing in that movie that wasn't thought about before. So it's not random colors, random symbols, random images. They he packed a lot. There's a that's why they had the companion book. You almost had to have a you do a curriculum for the book. But then we arguing about well, I don't want Penn State. Hey 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 hey. When you believe in things you don't understand, you suffer. So watch the movie, get the book, had a conversation. So anyway, by the time you get to 1831, a couple of years later. What you see is Nat Turner is ready to move. He's going to have a rebellion. He wanted to have the thing set off July 1st. I'm sorry, July 4th, 1831. It's going to be Independence Day. But he got sick. They postponed it. That's why they postponed it to August 21st. Now, for the rest of what happened between the 21st and the 23rd, we'll go to narrative. Because I don't want to, I, I want to go to what happened after. David Almendinger has written the latest book. Uh, this is Breen's book, To Purge This Land With Blood. Uh, I thought I had a few. For those of you who want like young people in particular, uh, Kyle Baker, the great cartoonist, black cartoonist, did a whole thing called Nat Turner. It's a graphic novel. You can get that for young people or middle school people if you want. There are children's books. Terry Bisson that did Thunder from the Mountain. He did one. It's, it's, in, it's back in the back. I didn't pull it. Uh, if you want to get more recent, uh, here is David, David Albendinger's book, Nat Turner and the Rising in Southampton County. This is important. But all of these books, which is where they missed the boat, all these books say that people weren't talking about Nat Turner, except in some obscure corners of black history, that they weren't talking about him until this book came out. And you know which one I'm about to tell you about, to, we about to talk about, not even talk about, I'm just gonna show it to you and keep going cause I ain't really got nothing to say about this book, good. William Styron's book, The Confessions of Nat Turner. This was the novel that Styron did where he basically tries to reshape the idea of Nat Turner, it's fictional, this is 1966, 1967 is first printing. So 66 and then 67. Here's William Styron, go call himself reinventing Nat Turner. That's cool. In fact, rather than getting to arguing about who he thought he was, we let the ancestors speak because some black people got together. These brothers, William Styron's Nat Turner, 10 black writers respond. <laughs> and so they roasted Styron. Lerone Bennett, Alvin Poussaint, Vincent Harding, John Oliver Killens is in here. 
Ernest Kaiser, Charles Hamilton, Mike Thelwell, the editor, our man, your Hunter University uh, colleague, John Henry Clark. You know what I'm saying? They, I mean, you got, look, Lerone Bennett wrote an essay called Nat's Last White Man. Uh, uh, um, uh, Vincent Harding, you've taken my net and gone. John Oliver Killens, The Confessions of Willie Styron. He goes on. And that reminds me, actually, I was introduced to Kerry James Marshall, who we talked about when we talked about Charles White. I remember going into the National Art Gallery and the brothers are checking bags. And, and that's when they told me, hey, man, you got to go up in the tower. Well, yeah, man, it's a brother up there, Bad Brothers exhibit, Kerry James Marshall. So he said, you know, this is what happened. Black people working all these jobs and you go past them to the director of the museum thinking you're gonna learn something. You better stop there to catch the check your bags because they in there every day. You, you should never be surprised how much they know. In fact, go read uh, 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 Ralph Ellison's uh, uh, essay, The Little Man at Chiraw Station. He said, the people who know the most about opera at the Met are the cats that move all the scenery all day, every day. Y'all out here trying to look at the mute, at the critics, you better go listen to these because they done heard every aria that's been sung in this building over the last 30 years and they'll tell you who the best is. Anyway, so I get off the elevator. I go up in the tower, as they call it, at the art gallery. There are very few living artists who exhibit up there. Marshall was, I think, only the second living person, first black. The Astor Gates uh, was the second. I went up there, get off the elevator. Hmm, I'm looking, they had the black and white sketches first. Then you go into big rooms and you got like the huge wall size joints that he does. So I'm looking. And then at the far end of this initial hallway, there's a simple rectangle painting, black and white shades, because he always paints it black, all black. And hmm, boy, if I could find, I don't know. I think I, did, I took all my, let me see. I don't know if I have a Kerry James, man, nah. If I had a Kerry James Marshall handy, I don't think I have a Marshall handy. I could pull it out because it's usually in all the, I got all my Charles, oh, wait, 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 wait. Wait a minute. Oh, man. Yeah, this is not my working copy. I'm gonna do something I rarely do. This is Kerry James Marshall. This one is still in the wrap because I got two copies. I mean. Oh, no, don't, don't. don't. Oh, that's okay. That's okay because my, my working copy. It's valuable inside the plastic. No, it's not. That's the whole point. There you go. When we believe in things we don't understand, we suffer. If you can't read a book, how valuable is it? <laughs> oh my gosh, you just messed me up again. I, it's in, I it's stay with you. <laughs> now just think about it. It's in the shrink wrap. Like, well, okay, I can't read it. Right. Now, it might not be in here though. I'm hoping it is, but if it isn't, that's okay too, because going through here, I'm sorry, y'all. If y'all give me 15 seconds, uh oh, wait, hold up. Nah, see, and here's the thing the man paints in black. So we might not be able to see it even if it's in here. But now I'm realizing that it's not in here. It's one of his most famous ones. Okay, I just had to describe it to you, and y'all can look it up. Y'all can look it up. Can we see the cover of that one, though? Since you oh, yeah. took it out of plastic. It's just simply called Carrie James Marshall. I mean, they do these. Here's the thing about art books. Once they do a first first run, they usually don't do. This is a more recent one called Carrie James Marshall History of Painting. I mean, I have them all. The catalog you want to get is the one called Mastery, M-A-S-T-R-Y. See, I usually keep because Charles White and Carrie James Marshall were so close, but I moved all my Carrie James Marshalls because there's a little one. Oh, man. Anyway. That's gonna bother me. I know like, it is. Come on, come on back, come on back. Yeah, yeah I'm not, yeah, cause you know, I started looking for it. All the, they're all over there. They're probably about maybe, 
maybe a dozen or so, including the overseas, the European catalogs. But anyway, here's the, here's the thing. Y'all just have to imagine or look it up. Look up this painting by Kerry James Marshall. It's a black man standing like a, with a tunic, and then there's a bed behind him, and there's a body with no head, and in his hand is the head of a white man. The name of that painting by Kerry James Marshall, one of his most famous, is called Nat Turner with the head of his master. <laughs> when I saw that Kerry James Marshall, I said, I see why them brothers wanted me to come up here. And I stayed up there for hours because then just I went around the corner and that's when you saw Great America. That's when you, one of his famous paintings. That's when you see, I mean, Kerry James Marshall's a beast. Anyway, that haven't been said. Nat Turner is in our memory. But in most of these books, they say it wasn't until Styron came around in the mid 60s that he's reintroduced. And here's where we end. Let's be very clear about this. The question we want to ask is not just about the Nat Turner Rebellion in South Hannah County, August 21st to the 23rd, 1831. Because what white people use that to do is kill a bunch of black people who had nothing to do with it. What, mm -hmm. they, what they use that to do is to accuse, uh, say, we got to pass these laws. In other words, think about that in the way we're thinking about now. If somebody black had done what this white man did a couple of days ago, driving up near the Library of Congress and Capitol talking about he gonna blow stuff up. Oh, here's our chance. Let's go pass every law in the world because it wasn't one white man, it was all the blacks. <laughs> in other words, this is the thing that they do. They use the Nat Turner Rebellion to push all kinds of laws, to, to, to brutalize black people. And all of these books will say, there's no record of Nat Turner's family. They argue about his mother's name, you know, was it Nancy? Was his grandmother really from Africa? I mean, was his mother, did he have a son? And well, maybe his name was Rhetoric, we're not sure. But where would you go? That's social structure people arguing. Here in Louis Gates, somebody asked a question to him on the root.com years ago. Did Nat Turner have children? And uh, he, his response was, well, there's some people who say that they're the grandchildren of Nat Turner, but their father's birth certificate doesn't line up. I'm thinking to myself, Professor Gates, brilliant hardworking Professor Gates, you really are going to go to the archives to track down what black people said? No problem, go. Go with God, brother. It's like that documentary on the black church. A lot of money spent, a lot of conversations had, but <laughs> oh Lord, my God, you didn't quite get the spirit. Oh, the spirit of the black church. So you then I'm going to the governance structure. This is from the... Negro History Bulletin, volume 27, number four, January 1964, a death notice for Miss Lucy May Turner. Mm. There she goes. Let's see if I get it where you I can see. see. I see. Ken. Yeah, I'll keep moving. There we go. Ken, Ken and Nat Turner. Nat Turner. There she is. Ken and Nat Turner? Lucy May Turner? Who is this lady? Miss Lucy May Turner, M-I-S-S, East St. Louis, Illinois, 3125 Virginia Place, East St. Louis. Gentlemen, Miss Emma Jean Wilson writes this letter, and we'll, we'll close with this. Oh, you know what? Why don't we stop? Mm -mm. We have to stop. Yes, we do. So why don't we pause, and next week, we will, uh-oh, see, see you playing. It's not in his hand. 
the body ain't there, only the head. That's it. That's it. See, in your mind, how you remember Einstein thing, and I always remember it in black and white. Because the start, and you think about Kerry James Marshall, he always got like that Frankenstein looking thing, that spark on their foreheads, that electricity going. <laughs> when you see that thing in real life, he got the ax, the blood is there, and that's what Nat Turner represents. Oh, that's beautiful. So we got to stop here, because I know we got to stop. But here's the thing. Next week, let's talk about Lucy Turner, because Nat Turner had a family. And Nat Turner's family goes through the history of our people, everything from the 1917 riot in East St. Louis, where Josephine Baker came out. Lucy, Tur Lucy Turner, her sister, lived there with their mama. But we're going to go, we're going to go, this story takes us right to the day. I'm going to pause there. Stop. All right. Listen. Um, <sighs> we'll pick up Lucy Turner next week. Y'all got to come back. I, I'm digesting this the way I'm, the blood in my eye. The, the, all of this is the same to me. Um, and I'm so grateful that we have this time. Also, get on narrative. If you haven't joined, it's Please. your entryway to be a part of Nubia. So you got to be a part of narrative to be a part of Nubia. And uh, that's, this is our space, right? So. Um, and there's a whole uh, on narrative, a celebration of Rashidi. So like, thank you, Dr. Carr as well and his family for, um, you know, for allowing that. Just say just one or two words about this brother again, please. Renoko Rashidi, one of the great world travelers, great historians. Uh, if you want to get one of his books, maybe get African presence in early Asia. Um, he made transition in Kemet a couple of weeks ago. Thanks to our brother, Tony Browder. And thank you, Uraeus. Uraeus really helping us get this thing together. Um, Tony Browder has informed us along with the family that his body, he, he's back here in the United States. They're going to have his ritual soon. Uh, but look up Rashidi. In fact, come to narrative. He's beautifully curated. Beautifully curated. And, and he's written a lot. Uh, I'm reading, rereading now his Ivan Van Sertima papers, which is, uh, he, he was very close to Ivan Van Sertima. So that's very important. So thank you. Thank you. I mean, I mean, you know, thank everybody who's part of it because it couldn't happen without the people that, no. that five on it that you talked about so many, 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 many <laughs> lessons to go with, uh, with George Washington, um, not George Washington covered. Um, oh my goodness. Why am I blanking right now? Uh, uh, Carter G. Woodson. Carter Woodson. Now, no and, now, and how the kids funded everything that he was doing. This is what we got to do so that we're not asking those questions about, you know, are they using us? You know? our, and our ancestors were in fact i'm looking over your left shoulder who is that looking at us saying i'm counting on you ida b wells no this brother oh where which one do you talk about over your left shoulder i'm looking at you I, in the I, face. I, we're reversed so i'm like okay. right right we're, so I'm, I'm i'm pointing over there all right tell me tell me who i who? see the brother in the in the picture frame with the sunglasses oh my grandfather that's what I'm talking about. I figured what? that was the what? <laughs> what sweeper. My grandfather, right? Yes, there. yes, yes. I say he looking like what y'all gonna do? That gonna man do. looking at y'all. Yeah. He looking at me. I'm like, bruh. He looking at me like you slacking. I'm like, hey man, I'm on it, bruh. I'm doing what I can do. <laughs> Let me just say thank you again, Dr. Carr. I'm so thank grateful. Um, everyone, hit the like buttons because we need to shake up all. Like Dick Gregory said, we got to be agitators because we don't want to walk around with no dirty drawers. No dirty drawers. <laughs> Love you. Love you too. I'll see you. Uh, well, you know, I'm going to see you in a minute. See you in the streets. Yes, see you yes, in a minute. Sir. All right. Bye.